Grab your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we just have two verses today, verses 11 and 12. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Let me read God's holy word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning, please. Amen. I wonder if you've ever turned up somewhere and immediately felt a little bit sick in your stomach because you realised, I don't belong here. Maybe you've turned up to a party only to realise it was a fancy dress. Or maybe you've turned up to a party and realised it's not a fancy dress and you're in a costume and there's nothing you can do. Maybe you changed schools as a teenager or as a kid and, and you walked into the playground and you just thought, oh... I don't belong here, and you, you never really gelled or clicked. Maybe you've met your boyfriend or girlfriend's parents for the first time, and you thought, uh-oh, <laughs> they are very different to that, and I'm not sure how this is going to work. Maybe you've changed careers, and you've walked into the staff room or met your new colleagues, and you thought, oh, no, this is, this is not my hood. These are not my people. Or maybe you're coming along to church, uh, either as a, as a Christian or not yet a Christian, and you, and you think, this is, this is weird, this is strange, I don't know if I belong here. Uh, it, it's not a nice feeling, it's a horrible feeling if you know that feeling. We feel it because God's made us social beings. Uh, he's made us to desire to fit in in community. We want to feel like we have a place, we want to feel like we belong. And such is that desire and that pressure that will even change who we are, what we like, what we wear to fit in. I wonder if you've ever done that. You've changed who you are to fit into the group. I did that when I was in my teen years. When I was 14 through, I don't know, 18 or so, I loved heavy metal music. I loved just the raw, I don't know, I don't know if it was bad, but I loved the screaming and the guitars and the drums. And so I was into that scene, into that crowd, and I wanted to fit in. And, and you know, if you know that crowd, that crowd wears, you know, skinny black jeans and black T-shirts and have black hair and black, you know, stuff on their eyes. And I was a six-foot blonde, you know, chubby boy from the Sutherland Shire. I did not look like the heavy metal kid at all. But I really wanted to fit in that crowd. And so I was going to one of my first ever concerts. It was a band called Mudvayne. They're terrible. Don't go and listen to their music. Uh, they wear crazy. They're just, yeah. Uh, but their music is powerful, but uh, their lifestyle, not so much. But I went to this concert. I don't know why my parents let me. But anyway, so I got the black jeans. I had a big black um, belt with a, a bat as the uh, buckle that I got from Paddy's Markets. Had my black T-shirt, some band like Children of Bodom or something like that. Or, no, it was Hate Breed. That's right, Hate Breed. You know, I was a Christian kid, you know, youth group, but Hate Breed on my front shirt. But the one bit that was missing was I, 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 everyone else seemed in that crew seemed to do stuff with their eyes and their makeup. 
And so as a 15 year old boy, six foot tall, blonde hair, tight black jeans, sitting in my mum's bathroom, <laughs> as she drew eyeliner on my eyes so that I would fit in in this heavy metal crowd. And I got to the concert and I just, even still, I just knew these are not my people. <laughs> I'm there with eyeliner and I'm like this, I'm never doing this again. I'm so glad I don't have a photo of that. <laughs> and so I'm sorry to disappoint you. If I did, I probably would show it because it's a good story. But that's the power of our desire to fit in and belong. But the problem, the hard thing about us who are followers of Jesus is that when it comes to fitting in with the world, we're actually called to do the exact opposite. Daniel Doriani in his commentary says this, the social man or woman hates to be out of place and everyone has walked through a door and felt like a punch to the belly. These are not my people and I don't belong here. In our passage, Peter tells us that the I don't belong here sensation is endemic to the experience of Christians in the world. It's an uncomfortable reality for us, isn't it? We don't want to feel like we don't belong. I, don't, I want to feel like I'm cool and I'm normal and I fit in without eyeliner. But the reality is, is that if you're a follower of Christ, we don't belong here. This is not our home and we should never feel completely at home in this world. We've been told in the letter to 1 Peter, as the screen says behind, that we are elect exiles that we follow Jesus, the rejected cornerstone. We're a new nation, a new race, a holy set-apart priesthood. We've left behind our former life. These are all things we've already learned so far. And in verse 11, Peter told us again that we are sojourners and exiles in this world. That is, that we're just visiting. We're passing through. We're temporary residents. We're not setting up a permanent camp we have a different home country and we're on pilgrimage there and this is just a stop along the way. This means that we'll never fully integrate and assimilate into this world. We have different values, customs and practices. We may look the same as people around us. We may share the same blood even and DNA, the same postcodes, the same background and history but we have a different homeland. And that makes all the difference. It means that we always should and always will feel like, in some way, we don't belong. So how are we meant to live in a world where we don't belong? Well, verse 11 marks a transition in Peter's letter. And all the way through to chapter 4, verse 11, he's answering that question. What does it mean? How do we live in a world where we don't belong? And he's going to apply the gospel that he's already preached so beautifully throughout chapters 1 and 2 and say this is what it looks like to live in a world where you don't belong. He's going to be asking questions like how do we interact with government? What about our marriages? What if we're married to an unbeliever? How do we suffer well even if we've done nothing wrong? What about our economic status and our work and our position in society? And in verses 11 to 12, it's sort of like the, the theme that introduces the, 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 the theme that runs across the rest to chapter 4, verse 11. 
And Peter tells us two things, two responses that we need to have, two kind of instinctive, reflective responses we need to have to live well in a world that is not our home. And these responses are not often our instinctive responses. You see, instinctively, when you feel like you don't belong, you might want to retreat and run away, or you might want to fit in and change who you are. Or you might be contrarian and you might fight and rage and, you know, we don't belong and uh, down with the government, etc., etc. But neither of these are what Peter calls us to. This is not correct. Instead, Peter calls us to be a faithful presence within the world. And he tells us in these two verses that we need to fight the war within and shine to the world outside. We need to fight the war within, that's our first instinctive response as Christians, and then shine to the world outside. And so to kind of explore that sentence, we've got two main points this morning, our internal war and our external witness. So let's jump into point number one and see how we're meant to live in this world that's not our home. Well, number one, our internal war. Read with me verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Have you ever wondered why you still have so many sinful passions and desires even though you're a Christian or even though you've been a Christian for years? You think, why have I still got these conflicting desires? Why do I still want to sin? I've been a passionate follower of Jesus since I was about 16 years old. I'm a pastor. I spend my days reading, praying, and thinking about God, and yet I still also have many sinful passions and desires that seem to rise up and want to take over me. And maybe you do as well. There's a whole host of different things um, that could be these passions that Peter is talking about here that rise up and are waging war against us. Perhaps it's greed and envy. You see something else someone has and you thought you were content, but now you feel possessed. (laughs) I must have this. I will not be satisfied until I do. Maybe it's someone else's car or a home or a family situation or a piece of technology even. Or maybe it's these passions and feelings of pride that unless people recognize you for your achievements and who you are, you just feel either depressed or angry. Maybe you still have these passions of of comfort. You just, you know you're called to live a life of sacrificial service for other people and for the king of kings, but you actually just long and lust for a quality of life that's just nice and pleasurable. Not too much. Not, I'm, not, you know, I'm not being greedy, but not too little. And the thought, the thought of losing out and being uncomfortable is like a nightmare to your soul. Maybe it's anger and rage. You just have these moments where you feel uncontrollable. Maybe it's kids or a spouse or someone at work or you're in the car and you, you don't know where it comes from, but there it is, at zero to 100. You know, see, I even clenched my fist. Maybe this is a problem for me. There's a passion 
comes out of nowhere. Or maybe you're a controller. And as soon as anything in your life doesn't fit with your plan, your world is starting to crumble and panic sets in, anxiety sets in, fear sets in, and you, you want to grasp for control and reorder your life. These are passions that Peter is talking about. Not all of them bad. Uh, some of them good. But when they become over the top, when they rise out of order of our souls, they can take over us and they're warring for our soul. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We long for bad things and even with good things, we love them so much that they can replace God to us. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this reality? We live in this world where these passions are being stoked all the time. TV advertisements, people, you just walk around and suddenly these passions are here. Well, this passage ought to actually be a comfort to us, a comfort to our conscience. Because the Holy Spirit, through Peter, is letting us know that the presence of this battle and war is not to be unexpected in the Christian life. It's actually going to be part and parcel of your walk as a Christian. If you're feeling beleaguered by temptation and in these wars of sins and passions, and you think, maybe I'm not even a Christian... Well, actually, this verse is is teaching us and and the Christians that Peter was writing to that these feelings, these passions, these desires, well, they're part and parcel of the Christian life. Salvation doesn't eliminate sinful passion. You aren't doing anything wrong necessarily if you feel like there's a war within you. You know the right thing to do. You know what's wrong and you want to do what's wrong anyway. Verse 11 says, the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. It's an expected reality. You see, the good news of the gospel, the great news of the gospel, is that the penalty of our sin has been paid. When Jesus died on the cross, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone and nothing else, the wrath that should have been poured upon you for your sins has been paid for in full by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We learned that in chapter 1, verse 18. You are cleansed. You are purified. You are holy. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the power of sin is broken. So the penalty of sin is paid for. The power of sin is broken. So you no longer have to do those sins. You aren't chained to sin anymore. Peter told us that we're new creatures. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the the power of sin is broken. We don't have to sin. But this verse teaches us that the presence of sin remains in the life of a believer. We are not yet fully holy and pure. There's a war taking place, not out there, but in here in our own hearts, in our still affected, not yet fully sanctified bodies, minds, souls, and spirits. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talked about this war in Romans chapter 7, verse 21 to 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members 
another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin and death that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul knew this battle. Peter knows this battle. We know this battle. And this is meant to be somewhat of a comfort. Peter's a good pastor. He knows that we've just been told we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we're to offer spiritual sacrifices, that we're to declare his excellencies. And he knows that when people compare that exalted identity and purpose to their actual lives, they're going to be like, that's not me. There must be other people. No, but he's teaching us, okay, this is to be expected, but that's not it. We're not meant to just be like, oh, well, we have sinful passions and what can you do? We're human, right? No, Peter says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Feel the the force and the earnestness of Peter. Beloved, he calls his people. Beloved by God and beloved by him. And he says, I urge you. He he doesn't command here, though he could. But it's different. The tone is different. it's It's a pleading. It's a, don't do this. Oh, please, don't go there. You don't want to do it, people. You don't want to do it, Christians. Don't listen to the passions of your flesh. Heed my counsel. Abstain, he urges. That lust you feel, that pride, that anger, that same-sex attraction, that jealousy, that need for approval, that rage, that anger, that thirst to drink or spend away your problems, Peter leans in and he says to us, I urge you, fight your urges. I urge you, fight your urges. Peter is well-versed in this. Think of Peter. He is one who has given in to the passions of his flesh. On the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter gave in to the passion of his flesh for the fear of his own body, the need to fit in and approval, and he betrayed his Saviour and Lord. He denied that he knew Jesus Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. He gave in to the passion of his flesh, the war that was in him that said, don't own him, don't know Christ, get away. He gave in and was, he wept bitterly as a result. Years later, Peter gave in to the passions of his flesh again. He turned on the Gentile believers and excluded them and only ate with the Jewish Christians because of his fear of the Jewish Christians, thinking that they wouldn't approve of him, they wouldn't like him. And so he shunned the Gentile believers and put them out of his life. The Apostle Paul had to come and rebuke the Apostle Peter because of his way that he'd broken up the gospel. He'd given in to his passions. He knows what it's like. He knows the damage to his soul and to the people around him. So he leans in to us and his people and he says, I urge you, I plead with you, fight your urges. Be 
Because these passions, though they feel right and good and instinctive, well, Peter tells us that they are waging war against our very souls. This is serious. We can't trifle with sin. Yeah, we're saved. But Peter knows that we're saved, but we can't trifle with it. It's a war. There's missiles going, there's arrows being, there's bullets going across. This is hand-to-hand combat, and it's not out there. It's actually in here, in the life of every believer. How do we fight? Well, Peter's very brief. I urge you, abstain. It's not all you could say about how to live a holy and Christian life, but in some respects, it's the first line of defence. If, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we did abstain and we actually did that, that we'd be a lot holier, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd be able to live a much more joyful and holy Christian life. But if that's all Peter said, he'd be very similar to the moral philosophers of his day, the, the Greek philosophers who, who believed in a virtuous life and they said abstain from immorality. Peter, Peter's not advocating moralism, just try harder, guys. You know how you really feel that sin? Just don't do it. Okay, signing out. He's also not psychologizing us and just saying, okay, you've got to really get in touch with your feelings and think about them and let's explore the depth of them and just know that, yeah, it's really hard. That's not obviously what happens in psychology. I'm not trying to offend Marcus and my psychologists here. I'm more thinking therapeutic kind of world. Sorry, I just heard Marcus laughing. I'm like... It's not meant to be offensive. Instead, Peter Peter gives us a gospel motivation. He, He tells us who we are as part of the the piece to help remind us how to abstain from these passions. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he tells us what to do, but he roots it in a gospel reality that we have been saved. We're going on to heaven. This world is not our home. The passions that wage war in your body, they're foreign to you. They're not meant to be there and you've got to fight them until you get to your homeland in heaven. He, you know, he's using this kind of travel analogy or, or migrant analogy. I was just in Ethiopia for eight days and I don't want to move there. Um, I, the time I was there was lovely, but I longed for the comforts of home. I longed for Australia. I lived in America for 10 months and I liked it. I had a good time, but I love Australia. I, I want to live in Australia if God would have it for the rest of my life. So as I was there, I was a sojourner. I was an exile. And I was longing for Australia. I was longing for my home. And Peter says that's the same for us as Christians. So one of the ways to help fight the urges within is to remember that this world is not our home. We're not to suppress all of these feelings. Like, just don't think about them. These feelings, these passions we have for glory and for beauty and for power and approval and comfort and joy, excitement and intimacy, we're not to suppress them. Instead, we're to realize that we're never going to get it fully here because we're not home yet. And those feelings, we're meant to tap into them and realize, oh, this is pointing me somewhere else. I'm a sojourner. I'm an exile. I'm not going to taste this food here because I'm waiting to eat the food when I get home. 
C.S. Lewis said this, and I've quoted this before, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Man feels sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We know this, don't we? When we give in to these passions, they never fully satisfy. They always leave us short. And so Peter's saying, abstain. Say no and wait for the better expression of them which you will have when you get home. It's like that famous lollipop experiment where they put kids in a room and they say, I'll give you one lollipop now, but if you don't eat it for two minutes, I'll come and give you another one. And like 99% of all the kids just eat the one lollipop and miss out on the second one. And as Christians, we can be the same. God says, I've got a kingdom. You will reign. You will have all the intimacy you could ever want, all the glory you could ever want, all the joy you could ever want, all the satisfaction you could ever want. Abstain here, wait, and when you get home, I'll give it to you. So we need to fill ourselves with desires for our new home. We need to remember I'm not home yet and let that help us to abstain. C.S. Lewis continued to say, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. And we need, that's why we need church community, because these desires will deceive us. And that's why we need one another to say, hey, are you being led along by that? Is, is that overruling you? I notice you've said this a lot of times. We need to help each other press on to that home country. So how are we meant to live in a world where we don't belong? Well, firstly, Peter says it's not about fighting a war out there. It's about fighting the war within. We need to abstain from the passions of our flesh and prepare ourselves for our home country. Secondly, he's not finished, though. We're not just gritting our teeth and holding on for dear life. Point number two our external witness. So we have our internal war, but then Peter says, okay, this is how else you live in this world. You have your external witness. We need to fight the war within and shine to the world outside. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day a visitation. It's not just, Christianity is not just about living a pure life internally. The Holy Spirit through Peter is telling us that as a church, as Christians, we have a responsibility as citizens of heaven to be ambassadors to this dark world and to live in an honourable and righteous way in our world so that our world will know the way of Christ in a good way, not in a bad way. And often, unfortunately, the church is more known for our misdeeds than our good deeds. We're ambassadors, shining out to this world of what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's just like when any 
people group goes overseas on holidays, there's always stereotypes about people from particular nations. And I'll choose a safe one, um, not Australians because we're all perfect. Uh, the loud American tourist. Uh, you may have experienced the loud American tourist, the stereotype, complaining, coming into things, saying, why isn't it like this? Back here in America, it's like this. And people get annoyed of the loud American tourist bossing people around. And when people go around doing that, or Aussies do it in their own way, it gives America a bad name. Well, that's what Peter's saying for us as Christians. He's saying we're not to be like that, but instead we're to live such good lives that though they want to accuse you of being that annoying tourist, eventually they'll glorify God and declare that you are right when he comes on his day of judgment. That word there, uh, see your good deeds, the word Peter actually uses is the word for beautiful uh, rather than good. It, it can be either way, but there's more of the sense in that word good there of beauty, this kind of display of light and goodness. Where did he get that idea that we're meant to shine out into the world? Well, of course, he got it from Jesus Christ, his Lord. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his new kingdom people, this is what's meant to be normative for you. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is your conduct in the world at the moment? At work, as a neighbour in your, in your street, as a parent perhaps at school, as a colleague at work, a team member in a uni assignment, in the playground at school for the students who are here, on your social media account? What kind of light are you shining out? What, what, what's your conduct? What are people looking at? And if they were to only understand what Christianity is from your example, what would they know? What would the stereotype of the church be based on your ambassadorial witness to the people? Well, Peter's saying, as a church, as Christians, our lives are meant to be so good that they shine the glory of Jesus to a dark and broken world. And for those who have eyes to see in that dark and broken world, eyes that are awakened by God, they'll see the light and they'll be drawn in and drawn to the kingdom. We saw that with Alpha last year. One of the members, I can't actually remember who it was, but I heard this story that one of them joined our Alpha course to hear more about Jesus because they were so impressed with their Christian colleague and the way that they lived that they thought, I, I want to learn more about it because I like you and the way that you live. Oh, how I long for that to just be the regular story of people coming to church because they're like, there was, yeah, this friend at work is so weird, uh, but good. And I had to try and make sense of that. I'd love our church to be full of people figuring out Christianity because we're shining so beautifully wherever we go. Now, our good works will never save us. It would be silly to think that we could do enough good works to overcome all the sin that we've done in our life. Instead of saving us, they're signposts. Our good works are lighthouses to the world of God's goodness. 
And Peter's not afraid of talking about good works, and we ought not to be. We ought to spur one another on to live good lives. We ought to, that's why this verse is here, as a church, to spur each other on to live the best possible lives in the world. All throughout the rest of the letter, Peter is going to tell the churches to live good lives. Not so that they'd be saved, but so that they would display their salvation. He's already told us in verse 15, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That includes every part of our life, wherever we go. Holiness. 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And you are Sarah's children if you do good, chapter 3, verse 6. Turn away from evil and do good, chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Chapter 3, verse 16. So that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, the promise here is not if you do good, the world will be like, we love you. We want to know more. In fact, the, the, the emphasis on 1 Peter is you can be doing really, really good things and you're going to suffer for it. And there's some good works that we have to do in our nation as Christians, as a church, that, that our society will define as harmful, as evil and hateful. But we've got to do the good anyway, even if people don't receive it well. And we've got to receive the suffering. So Peter leans in and he's saying, okay, I'm going to tell you all these things about how to live in the world. But there's two things that it's going to shape it all. If we're going to have a good witness, if we're going to be the holy priesthood, the new nation, the temple of the living God, we have our internal war. So we're not to fight the world. We're to fight ourselves and to abstain from the passions of our flesh. We're to fight the war within and maybe there's some thing that the Holy Spirit even now has put on your conscience. Don't block that. Lean into that. What's that overriding passion that you know is there that you, you're giving into? And ask and share it with someone. Ask for prayer. Even ask for discipling in it. Say, I really struggle with X, Y, or Z. Can you help me to grow in it? Because we can abstain because the power of sin has been broken. And then he says, it's not just this internal monkish reality. We're all just working on our own personal holiness and fighting the war within. We're called to our external witness. As a church, we're to shine beautifully in the world. SG Parramatta, let's shine in Parramatta. May people know us as the most loving, the most kind, the most charitable, the most ethical people. May people be drawn to our church because of the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we welcome, as we already do so well. So, we want to fit in. And I'm not saying we need to all be weird and, you know, go just be strange in the world. But the I don't belong here sensation, well, that's, that's what we've got to get used to as Christians, as exiles. And as we do it, as we live in this world, we have to put to war the sinful desires in ourselves and shine with good works in the world so that people can see the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvellous light.
Let's pray. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to fight the war within. Oh, Lord, you know my own struggles. You know all of our struggles. And we ask for more grace. God, I pray that you would help us to hate the sin, to love the Saviour. And then, Lord, motivate us as a church, as your people, as individuals and as groups, as life groups, to shine in this world so that people would see your good deeds and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.